0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today on the podcast, we're going a little further back in time than usual. We're going to be discussing new perspectives on medieval Anatolia. Our guest today is Sara Nur Yildiz, who is a research fellow at the University of St. Andrews School of History. She's the co-editor of a recent book that came out, co-edited with Andrew Peacock, entitled The Seljuks of Anatolia, Court and Society in the Medieval Middle East. And she's also part of a research project called The Islamization of Anatolia, again led by Andrew Peacock. Dr. Yildiz, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Chris, for having me as your guest.
0: So as we've already understood from her CV a little bit, Dr. Sarah Nur Yildiz is a historian of medieval Anatolia. That includes the Seljuk period, that includes the period of, of Mongols, that also includes the early Ottoman period. And our discussion today will actually be framed around the question of why are we referring to this place called Medieval Anatolia? For those who are familiar with European historiography, they might know that there's some debate over the term medieval, and this is no less true in the context of the Islamic world. So to start off the conversation, Dr. Yildiz, you do consider yourself a historian of Medieval Anatolia. Why don't you let us know or explain for us why you like the term medieval for the period you study, what it refers to, and why it's better than some of the alternatives.
1: Yes, that's a good way to begin this discussion, Chris. Well, primarily this period has been referred to as pre-Ottoman, and you're probably familiar with the uh, book by Claude Cohen called Pre-Ottoman Turkey, which has set, I think, the standard for how we refer to this period. And, And I object actually to calling this period pre-ottoman for a lot of reasons. So the question is what do we call this period which encompasses you know the seljuks, mongols, the beyliks or principalities mm-hmm. and even the ottomans. Of course the reason why we object to using the term pre-ottoman is because it assumes that what's of importance is that the ottomans come after and this is basically a period which prefaces the rise of the Ottoman Empire. So this, this is a very teleological view of history, and it, it, it kind of it hierarchizes history, in a sense, by making it sort of as a kind of a, you know, a less important period, but only important because it does come before the Ottomans. And when you actually approach this period with that perspective... Well, you ha- you can't truly, I think, um, do the period justice. And we actually see that scholarship on uh, medieval Anatolia, primarily in the Turkish context, it it's problematic because Seljuk, especially Seljuk history, has been seen primarily as in a period which is important for the Turkization. Anatolia. Mm-hmm. The Seljuks, in a sense, represent, you know, the establishment of the Turkish vatan, a uh-huh. nation.
0: And so, for these historians, the, the the most relevant part of that period is, of course, uh, a Turkish, quote unquote, Turkish dynasty. The migration of, of peoples from yeah. um, further east, from Central Asia, from Iran, and this is. Relevance of the period and all of this other stuff that makes up the socio-political world is sort of falls by the wayside.
1: The Seljuk period has been studied by Turkish scholars primarily to understand the so-called Turkicization of Anatolia by the, the Seljuks. It's it's sort of the the story of the rise of the Turkish state, which then you know ultimately uh, you know finds its final dino- destiny in the Turkish Republic. So, lots of questions just aren't asked once you establish the fact that the Seljuks are Turkish, that they establish a Turkish state, and that, you know, it's the foundation of future Turkish states. You see, there's really not a lot of other questions that are asked by Turkish historians because, you know, the purpose of Seljuk history is to establish the Turkishness of Anatolia. Mm -hmm. And that's a very limited perspective of history. So, this is why we reject... Um, this kind of a perspective, there's a lot more complexity happening in uh, the geography of Anatolia between, say, you know, 1100 to 1300 or even to 1500.
0: Well, then I guess we should move on to explaining why exactly medieval is the better alternative for describing that period.
1: Right. And why do we use the term medieval? And now I am quite aware of all the objections against medieval, especially the recent objection that has been published by Daniel Varesco um, on the use of medieval for the Islamic world—that it's Eurocentric, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know the alternative he proposes, of course, being caliphal, uh, which of course doesn't, for obvious reasons, work for. A geography as well as for a time period which there is no caliph <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, so uh, the question is then like, how do we remove these theological labels such as pre-Ottoman and then how do we you know what do we substitute them with for instance I thought about referring it to as say post Seljuk for say 1350 or or post Mongol but in the sense that's another kind of yeah, teleological exactly. f- perspective where you're you're giving dynastic preference and so I like the term medieval because it doesn't have any dynastic presence you can talk about all sorts of different small polities that arise in the 14th century without having to sort of label them either you know this very awkward term Beylik, which doesn't really work very well in English mm-hmm. Um, which means principality. Sure. Um, In fact, the Ottomans were one of the many Beyliks when we think about it. So to call this, you know, 1300 is when, uh, well 1299 is is when the Ottoman Empire is supposedly, or the Ottoman state is supposedly Mm -hmm. founded. But I mean, that's, you know, uh, a rather bit of an absurdity. And to call, you know, anything after 1300 Ottoman, it just doesn't work for this complex region.
0: Well, when adopting this term that arises out of the European historiography... Of the European continent. We have to think about at least what it means in that context.
1: You can define medieval in different ways. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I'd like to consider medieval as a very fuzzy term, but basically one which describes the geor- geography of the post Roman world during the post Roman period. So, as you know, Anatolia being very much part of the Roman world after the breakup of. Roman power and then Byzantine power, um, I think it's very appropriate to refer to this geography as medieval. I don't think that's being at all Eurocentric in the sense that the Roman Empire was not a a European phenomenon, but as much of a Middle Eastern one as it was European. Mm -hmm. So I think if you you take a perspective of the Roman Empire and the post Roman Empire, I think that medieval works rather well. And there are, there are things which are very similar, I think, from a structural point of view in the way that uh, polities are run in the medieval period in Anatolia or in Europe. And we're talking about smaller populations. We're talking about, compared to the Roman period, less urban, more rural. Uh, Long-distance trade is is... Not occurring in the same way that it had been during the Roman period, and that economic change affects the entire social structures of these regions. So, um, you have dynastic rule with a, you know, a a king or a sultan may you mm-hmm. have who runs a small household of il- political elite. Mm-hmm. And their basic job is to extract surplus from the peasants, called taxes. And uh, so you have a small political military elite, which is organized on a household basis, both in Europe and in medieval Anatolia. And these things, of course, change with the rise of more territorial to territorial extensive polities with say the Ottomans or say with the Holy Roman Empire etc. So I think you know the rise of sure. you know, if you're going to use early modern for as a periodization for the Ottoman period, which is very popular now, I mm-hmm. think that it's quite appropriate to use medieval for the same geography.
0: And so in, in thinking about what this medieval actually is, you've raised a couple of points. One of them is that the the nature of the polities during this period is different. We don't have these large spaces dominated by polities that call themselves empires. Though we might refer to the Seljuk Empire as historians, the Seljuks don't necessarily claim to be that empire, right?
1: Well, that's a good question. Like what was the Seljuks of Anatolian empire or not? And one could argue, well it, well, of course, how do you define empire? Mm-hmm. And I would say there was a moment of empire building. In Seljuk Anatolia, when you have uh, Aladin Kaykubad absorb many of his neighboring polities, or putting them under at least tributary rule, such as you know the, the mm-hmm. Cilician Kingdom of Armenia, as well as you know the Trebizond state. So, so you've got this kind of expansion under Aladin Kaykubad's time. However, in 1241, you see the last. Um, a sort of expansion on the part mm-hmm. of the Seljuks with the conquest of Amit, today Diyarbakir, mm-hmm. And then, then the Mongols move in, and, of course, that ends any empire-building um, uh, efforts on the part of the Seljuks, because they, in a sense, become tributary to the Mongols. So you have a moment of empire-building, and there is a sense of empire. And there's a sense of empire, of course, in the discourse all along in the Seljuk period, just like you see the carolingians have a sense of empire the discourse of empire mm-hmm. you know they can themselves you know a, a, a rebirth of the roman empire so i mean even though they were just a tiny little polity hmm. under charlemagne when you think about it so in that sense you can say they they had moments of empire but you know from a modern concept of empire of course they kind of fall short
0: <laughs> well and I, and i think another thing that the term medieval does, at least in the European historiography, is it actually allows historians to study this period without an implicit state centered focus, right? It's very difficult, say, to refer to the caliphal Middle East when the After figure. Yeah, well, but especially when the figure of the caliph might not be particularly relevant to the socio economic life of many regions that are very peripheral to that polity.
1: Well, definitely in about thirteen hundred um, Anatolia, that there was probably I I have not run any any text that has any discourse of caliph. Of course, s- that that starts again, you know, back you know in the late fifteenth century. So, um, yeah, you can't really refer. I mean, the suggestions that Islamists have made to replace the term medieval, such as caliphal, it doesn't work. It's obvious. So.
0: Um <laughs> <laughs> Well, so in that case let's let's move on. We've set up a couple different tensions. We've set up the the troubles of teleological readings of the medieval period based on understandings of Ottoman history based on you know ideas created through the period of nationalism, Turkish nationalism, and we've also talked about what defines this period in terms of the the distinct kind of polities, the distinct kind of social worlds that opened up and I, I guess I'd like to start it off by... Uh, looking at that edited volume we did with Andrew Peacock, uh, the subtitle is Court and Society. Mm-hmm. Court, of course, referring to the Seljuk uh, dynasty, in this case, in Anatolia, although there's many other dynasties and households in play that we could maybe talk about later. And on the other hand, society. So what's the relationship? How are we, we
1: yes. going to talk
0: about these two things? Well,
1: I mean, the the reason why we wanted to bring society into that volume is that because... When you look at 13th century Anatolia and you look at the Seljuk dynasty, they're actually ruling over a majority of Christians. Of course, yeah. So when you talk about Seljuk Anatolia, we tend to forget about the Christians. We we, we think Turkish and we think Islamic, but um, actually a very essential component to... You know, this period of history, it are the Christian communities, which in some, you know, not all of Seljuk Anatolia, I mean, not, not all of Anatolia was under Seljuk rule, but a good portion mm-hmm. of it was by the mid century of the 13th century, that is. Mm-hmm. And um, yet uh, we have a complexity of relations, and so we wanted to bring out that complexity of society and its relationship to the ruling dynasty. For instance, you've you know, heard of the famous, there's a famous case of um, church in Cappadocia which has a donor fresco which makes reference to Andronicus II as well as Mesut II, the Seljuk ruler. So we have, you know, a double reference to two different rulers one in constantinople and because he is the ruler of i guess he's the head of the christian community Uh as emperor of the byzantines but at the same time there's a recognition of the seljuk sultan so i mean you have this complex relationship that we need to understand better and so if we just look at dynastic politics we don't necessarily understand this complex relationship and the you know the fact that the majority of the people in Anatolia at this time were were not Muslim, and especially in the rural areas, Islamization Islamization probably wasn't occurring as you know as much. And in fact, um, I've been thinking of one way to look at this problem and I've been looking at Wakfiya documents, mm-hmm. that is uh, endowment documents and I have a, a document in my hands, uh, well, that's been published by Wakuflar Dergisi, but no one's ever sh- actually looked at it carefully and it was drawn up in 1257 for Rifai uh, Zavie, it was a dervish complex and it lists over 22 villages that were endowed to this Avia, which is in today the region between Amasya and Niksar in the uh, Yeşil Irmak River Valley. Yeah. And there's a good portion of these villages were Christian, as well as Turkmen. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. We have names such as Sepetlu and Baraklu, mm-hmm. which refer, I think, to Turkmen groups. Mm-hmm. In in neighboring Christian villages, we have names that are sort of in, and as Greek and as well as Armenian names. But what's interesting is that if one does some research, and it can be done, um, these villages that had these Christian names, some of these villages actually remained Christian up until the population exchange yeah, in nineteen twenty two. So after thinking about this problem in the Masia area, I wanted to find other such examples of, of Christian community in uh, endowed villages. And I guess the most striking case is that of Sile, which is a, a mountain village town outside of Konya. And this village, which was 100%, well, not 100%, largely Christian until the population exchange, um, had a very special relationship with the Seljuk Sultanates in the sense that the village uh, provided um, many services to the endowment of Aladin Kekubat, which meant that, for instance, certain families had been designated to spend every winter their time cleaning the snow off the roofs of the mosques and they lived in the inner citadel where of course during the Seljuk period was where the political elite lived where the the household was and this continued well until the, throughout the Ottoman time, as uh, Ottoman documents indicate. And that the
0: villagers of Sile would continue to spend the winter. Certain
1: people designated from the village would... Cleaning snow. And it was an hereditary in position. Interesting. Yeah, so you see that, I mean, there were these special relationships with Christian communities in, uh, in, in the context endowed... Um, properties, and I think that needs to be further looked into, and that might explain why we have these large pockets of Christians throughout Cappadocia, throughout really the inner core of Seljuk lands, for sure. instance. Yeah, of
0: course.
1: And so, once you stop seeing the Seljuks primarily as a you know, you know the the driving force of Turkification and Islamization sure. of Anatolia, but actually see in different con- see the Seljuks in different contexts, you can start asking different questions, to you have material that we've known about so we can actually bring new life into the study of the Seljuks, which is famously known for having very few sources.
0: And so the society, or the societies really, that the Seljuks are in some form ruling over during this period, uh, doesn't conform to the identity that has been ascribed to the Seljuks uh, by much later historians thinking with this theological framework. So I guess you know we talked a little bit about that. Let's let's move back to the court. How does how does this view of the the society that Seljuks rule over, of Seljuk society change the way we understand the the nature of the Seljuk government, how they fashioned themselves? and their strategies yes. of rule.
1: I mean one one other problem is, is that there's always been this tendency to want to see the Seljuks of Anatolia as similar in structure and in culture as the Seljuks of Iran and I think that um, that can be quite problematic because I believe the Seljuks I mean after all they were in Anatolia for quite a long time uh, you know when we think about when the dynasty first establishes itself mm-hmm. in the but um, uh, they become quite anatolicized, uh-huh. I say. Uh, I think the geographical structures, limitations, um, you know, the cultural landscape, in its sense, shapes the Seljuks of Anatolia, and they become a quite, well, a quite diverse ruling group. I mean when you look at who is, in the households who are the political elite. I mean, we don't have just Turks nor just Iranians either. We actually have Byzantine noblemen, we have Christian noblemen, we Mm -hmm. have, uh, for instance, I I wrote an article likewise about a a, a descendant of the Komnenian family who becomes an important general and his name throughout, you know, he's referred to by Ibn Bibi, the main sources, Mm -hmm. Amir Komnenos, and he is a very, very, very important figure in, in the politics of the time during Aladin Kekubad's reign, and he was actually almost like a brother to Aladin Kekubad. And we see, for instance, later um, with uh, Isidin Kekos, his mother being Greek, his uncles, who were Greek, were dominant in his household, and in fact... Uh, they were very much uh, part of the politics of the time. So we have a very, you know, um, a mixed uh, political elite, and then add in the Georgian nobility, which enters into the Seljuk households with, for instance, Kehusro, the first of the second's marriage, with Tamar, the princess of, um, of Georgia. So we have uh, diverse languages and, and cultures and religions at the Seljuk court. And of course, there are there is scholarship done both by Western and uh, Turkish scholars on you know this phenomenon. You know the existence of churches uh, in the citadels throughout the various different cities mm. of the Seljuks, for instance. So this this kind of this aspect of the Seljuk court likewise is emphasized. I think in the articles in that volume mm-hmm. that ma- you made reference to. The other thing, however, too, is that we we also tend to forget that there was a very important nomadic component to the Seljuk polity. I mean, we we assume somehow that there was this. The Seljuks were. Persianized therefore they didn't like the Turkmen and the Turkmen and the Seljuks were always at odds and, and I don't think that necessarily can be um, always the case at least and it can't nec- it's not necessarily always in our sources either so mm-hmm. we need to reevaluate all of these kinds of um, assumptions that have been brought into the field and um, one must look at court and society sort of working and dying you know Mm-hmm. You know, as a dynamic, rather than
0: right, a dialectical yeah kind dialectical of relationship.
1: relationship exactly.
0: Well, one of the questions I would have, I, I mean, the Seljuks are expanding onto lands, uh, mo- most of its former Byzantine lands. So, and and of course, the Armenian Kingdom, Cilicia, another discussion perhaps. But you mentioned vakfias, which are you know a classical kind of. Uh, category of property within Islamic law and Islamic polities but uh, in terms of taxation and other types of, of property do we see continuities there with the Byzantines are they bringing a new system like if we want to talk about this interface of state and society
1: I mean the other thing too is you must not forget the Seljuks clearly were um, um, supporters of Islamic institutions they were not only just builders of mm-hmm. mosques and madrasas, but also like you said, they, they established a large number of, of endowed properties, wakvias. It's mm-hmm. an amazing amount of uh, endowment occurring in Anatolia in the 13th, especially during the early Mongol period. So they were very much part of the Islamic world, even if one sees this as a frontier. Uh, and they saw themselves as Muslims, uh, however, it's interesting because Ibn Arabi—it's well known mm-hmm. this story. He criticizes K- Kaykaus the First for, um, well, uh, not being, I guess, properly Islamic in his treatment of the Zimmi or you mm-hmm. know the the Christian populations in the sense that the famous um, Pact of Omar wasn't implemented in Anatolia at least when. Ibn Arabi traveled in the regions. And, of course, you have to f- remember Ibn Arabi being from Andalusia was very sensitive about Christian aggression. Mm-hmm. And uh, he felt that the Christians were a bit out of hand. And, of course, this you have to see this in the context of, of, of Antalya, which had um, rebelled against the Seljuks in 1214, uh, I believe, and then in 1216 were put back under Seljuk rule. And when they had rebelled, they had taken... On as their sort of, I guess, the ruler, the the king, king of Cyprus. So, I mean, in that context, you know, Ibn Arabi was very critical of the Seljuks not being, you know, Islamic enough and uh, implementing mm-hmm. such policies towards Christian populations. However, of course, if you're an if you're a sultan over a primarily Christian population, it would be very difficult to implement a Pact of Omar, I would think. So. <laughs> Um, nevertheless, I would say this: this we, we don't know that much about the Islamic institutions of the Seljuk Empire because historians have only looked for what we call properly historical material, which we have very little of. And one of the things that we do in our project of Islamization of Anatolia is looking at textual remains of the period looking at manuscripts and actually I have run into very, for instance a very interesting um, sort of you know manuscript that I, I found many many copies mostly from the 15th century but of an important m- author from Khwarezm, al zahidi al-khamini is his name and he was known to have been the teacher of Edibali, who is the founder, of course, of the, you know, the Ottoman, the father-in-law of the founder of the Ottomans, Osman. So, apparently, he was a madrasa teacher in Loranda, which is the town today of Karaman, and he was there for, for a while. He came from Khwarezm, and then he returned back to Khwarezm, and mm-hmm. he died in 1260, and he wrote basic, you know, fuk texts, and these were things, obviously, that were taught in the madrasas in Seljuk Anatolia, and they basically seem to have preferred the Transaxonian interpretations of Hanafi As and opposed to? As opposed to, say, um, this idea that, they well, I mean, they clearly weren't Shafis, we know that, um, even though there was some room for Shafi practice, etc. For instance, Aladin Keqabad was said to have done his... Morning prayers in the Shafi way, Okay. just to sort of make maybe perhaps make concessions to certain Shafis in the among the political elite who may have come from Damascus, etc. Um, but uh, he, I mean, there's this idea somehow that uh, pre-Ottoman. I say that in quotation, Anatolia was this place of heterodox Islam where there was no s- clear sense of orthodoxy mm-hmm. and that, you know, they weren't really good Muslims and, and you know, etc etc. et cetera. I mean, this whole idea of, of you know, Ojak, Ahmed Yashar Ojak writes a lot about, you know, this sort of, you know, so-called heterodox Islam of pre-Ottoman Anatolia. Uh-huh. And actually, you know, the textual evidence may very well point, it does seem to point to very you know, standard Hanafifuk with the preference given to texts written by Transaxonians, etc. So, um, we have a lot more work to do in this uh, realm.
0: So we've just been talking about some of the characteristics of Seljuk state and society, but as we said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, this fuzzy period of medieval Anatolia is one of many different political players, many different social groups, um, and foremost among them might be the Mongols, for example, which I know you've worked on a lot.
1: Yes, actually, um, I wrote my dissertation on Mongol rule in Seljuk Anatolia, so it's sort of one of the things I've thought a lot about. And, um, yes, we, we well, if we start with how the Mongol period has been conceived um, in Turkish historiography, it's sort of like an unfortunate period of time that isn't really given its due, I would say. Um, I mean... You always refer to the Seljuk period rather than to the Mongol period, for instance. Mm. I mean, I like to get around that by saying Mongol dominated Seljuk Anatolia, which sort of accounts for both. Because I mean, the Mongols were a clear presence, however, they lacked a kind of the same kind of political legi- legitimacy as, say, that the Seljuk dynasty had. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, one of the things I've been struggling with for maybe over a decade is is to Better understand the Mongol period of Seljuk Anatolia, and it, it it's basically um, uh, we know about the Mongol period from just a handful of texts. There's not a lot of uh, of uh, n- information uh, sources, whatever. So it, it, it's quite a challenge. And the primary source, of course, is is Ibn Bibi's um, history of the Seljuks and it's a written in a very difficult Persian prose and hasn't been edited. There are, of course, Turkish translations, but none of them really bring across the, you know, the the true depth of the text. So um, they're problematic. But when you come right down to it, Ibn Bibi wrote this h- great history of the Seljuks. And it's an amazing work, a fantastic work. It's 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 a brilliant piece actually when you think about mm-hmm. the complexities of this work but he wrote it in the context of Mongol rule so it's the primary text that gives us the basic information we know about Seljuk Anatolia but in itself the text was shaped by Mongol rule so what we know about Seljuk Anatolia comes from the Mongol period and is shaped by the problems of Mongol rule and so that's how i've been trying to 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 understand you know, the entire period of Seljuk Anatolia. A- and of course, it presents as many problems, because when you try to understand an entire period based primarily on one text, uh, of course, you are reading only one man's view of history. And this is our basic problem with Seljuk history. I mean, what we know, about 70% of what we know of Seljuk Anatolia comes from Bibi basically. Um, so, you know, he of course ends in 1282 and then we have a few other Persian texts that provide the basic outlines of the r- political narrative of what we know, but it's basically Bibi is our text. And the Mongol period, because it's so complex, because we're dealing with not just Anatolia, but also we're dealing with a polity based in Iran, Ilhanids. But before the Ilhanids, of course, yeah. Um, we have Mongol rule a period of Mongol rule that 's directed from directly from Karakurum so you know we have to deal with the complexities of Mongol rule as well as those complexities in the context of Anatolia and you know it 's extremely it 's extremely challenging but I think the importance of Mongol Anatolia is quite apparent when you look at how for instance the the, the Ottomans come to power. Of course, Rudy Lindner discussed, you know, these questions mm-hmm. in a few articles about, you know, the the fact that the Mongols were actually, you know, tributary to the, to the Mongols. And we kind of forget that. The Ottomans that. were tributary yeah. to the Mongols. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, the Ottomans were tributary to the Mongols. Um, of course, but when we, what the problem is, when we read Ottoman historiography, I mean, historical works, this is where the problems begin. For instance, Ashik Pasha, date et cetera. They completely... Ignore the Mongols, and hmm. they create a fiction of Seljuk-Ottoman continuity, and this is something that modern historians have bought accepted into, yeah. and bought into. So and that um, in itself
0: is very interesting. What type of rule they're trying to claim?
1: Yeah. So, so we have all those 15th century, you know, Ottoman chronicle texts that you know make reference to Osman, you know, getting. You know the investiture rule from the Seljuk ruler Aladin Keikubad, this you know very fuzzy character, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a total—it's um, a total fiction because Aladin Keikubad the third, what we know of from um, sources is that he was basically uh, run, uh, w- running around Tabriz, Maraga, you know, in uh, the center of, Mon- of you know the Ilhanate, begging for money, you know. He, he, was, he was called a beggar and a debtor, and apparently he was given a gift of a horse by one of the vizier's sons. So, you know, he was hardly in a position to um, grant investiture to Osman. So it's clearly a fiction. However, these fictions have been uh, read, you know, at face value by historians dealing with Ottoman history, and, and we have this, you know, uh, very, very problematic relationship between the Ottomans and, say, the Seljuk past. And I think this problem is actually a 15th century question, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that when these works were taking their final shape, mm-hmm. maybe they were begun to ri- to be written in Mehmet the second time, but they seem to be wrapped up in Bezid II's period. And we have the ongoing Ottoman conquest of the region of Karaman, which was something that took over a couple of decades, sure. you know, begun by Mehmet II and finalized by Bezid II. And the Karamanids were always claiming to be the successors of the Seljuks, because of course they had taken over the capital of the Seljuks, etc., and they. This was part of their propaganda, and I think the Ottomans were answering to that propaganda with their own set of mm-hmm. claims oh, to Seljuk rule. So I think that that's one way we can sort of see, you know, how that relationship has been uh, shaped in the historiography. And um, I think uh, we have to I- learn to read our texts much more critically. And mm-hmm. um, and also, it's, um, I think it's important to not be uh, bound to just, you know, for instance, when you study medieval Anatolia, just to use, for instance, Seljuk, the Seljuk period, because what we know about the Seljuk period in the secondary literature is actually based on readings of Ottoman histories of the Seljuk period. But if you don't know those Ottoman histories, you don't know how mm-hmm. they've been, actually, they've they're been created, I mean, they're fictional uh-huh. So uh, one must sort of, in a sense, understand where you know the knowledge we have about the Seljuk period comes from, and and so having studied the Ottoman period because I was trained as an Ottomanist, it uh-huh. uh, gave me the tools to 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 uh, approach this more critically.
0: Uh. I mean, some of some of the tensions you've brought out here, um, while we aren't trying to necessarily talk about medieval Anatolia as the forerunners to the Ottomans, a lot of the. Uh, issues you brought up i mean they they linger well into the ottoman period the um and i'm just thinking of my own research which is on uh forced settlement of Turkmen tribes in late uh 19th century anatolia ahmed jevdet pasha a very prominent historian and statesman he refers to these tribes as um seljuks essentially they he calls them seljuks They got corrupted so there's this very long legacy of this memory trying to Draw on the Seljuk's.
1: Well, it's interesting so. because I don't know what period you're talking about exactly. Can you tell me? 1860s. 1860s. Oh, okay. So, so it seems like in the 19th century, there's this attempt to, um, you know, see a long past in these these kinds of groups. And right. That's that's very interesting. And um, I've done a little reading on, for instance, you know, the early 20th century Turkish nationalists who tried mm. to revive the study of Anatolia. And yeah and try to discover texts and create an Anatolian past, but it seems like this precedes them.
0: Oh, sure. But it might be part of that that general movement, or even, I mean, more broadly, there may be something there, like, lingering, in this uh, Ottoman, like, state Mm -hmm. identity. Yes, yes. That, um, in order to make uh, a loyal population out of these tribes that are not paying taxes, they make some link to some kind of shared uh, political lineage that may or not be valid. Uh, one of the other things that came out in our conversation, uh, the, the paucity of, of textual sources, which is really severe for both the, the Seljuk um, case and, and, the, and, the, and the Mongol and case. The and yeah. the Baelic period, yeah. And the Baelic period in general. Um, probably the same critique that we've made of some of the historiography can also be made of the field of archaeology uh, in terms of ignoring this period when looking at the the history of anatolia
1: well there is no real medieval archaeology of anatolia it's but that would be very helpful i yes. think to understand oh, the well, society well I, I i think yes that would be that it, it is essential but it's also very difficult because you have to create a field basically out of you know nothing i mean uh there are people who are working on this of course, and. Uh,
0: Well, presumably to get to the the Roman ruins, you have to dig through.
1: Right, and there are, for instance, many medieval layers which just sort of sit in depots of, you know, Mm -hmm. of museums because nobody deals with them, but that's changing. Mm -hmm. The attitude is changing, but you still need to train people in dealing with this material, and it's very difficult because, um, you know, what is even like Seljuk... Archaeology often is just sort of art history, you know, where people go on digs and look for like museum pieces, but nobody is actually studying trade patterns, looking at uh. pottery shards, you know. So, um, you know, you need to train people sure. on how to do this, and I don't. That's where the problem is. There's nowhere anyone can get properly trained for this.
0: But these these. But like conceivably, the material culture of uh, medieval Anatolia could be a, a fruitful area of study. Given Absolutely, its sources. Absolutely. Or architecture, even we do have some. Well, you know, a- architecture is quite flourishing. Yeah. I
1: mean, because you know the Seljuk period is most known for its amazing architecture. Mm-hmm. So um, that that has has been well established. But but looking at you know actual sort of non-museum type remains, mm-hmm. you know, looking at very much patterns and things like this. <laughs> Yes, that different kind of archaeology. It, this hasn't really at all been developed, and even it could be said for the Ottoman period. I mean, you know, True. archaeology could be very important, and yet it's a, quite an undeveloped field. And um, those who attempt to do it <laughs> have a difficult time finding funding or support, or even, and then later jobs. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's 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 a material question in itself.
0: Well, on that note, I think uh, we'll uh, we'll bring it to a close here. I know a lot of our listeners are mainly uh, focusing on the Ottoman Empire and their casual or more uh, scholarly engagement with history. But if anyone out there, like Dr. Yildiz herself, was maybe converted into wanting to study medieval Anatolia a little more in depth, we have a bibliography on our website um, featuring the publications of Dr. Yildiz as well as some other books that have been mentioned in the podcast. Dr. Yildiz, thanks so much for talking to us today.
1: Thank you for having me as your guest. This is
0: very valuable to me as somebody who will someday probably be asked to teach the history of medieval Anatolia in some survey class to actually sit down and talk to one of the specialists was really valuable for me. We want to also thank our listeners for tuning in. We'll remind you to uh, check out our Facebook page. We have a group of some 18,000 followers that you can get in touch with. Um, maybe leave some comments, maybe get some discussion going there or in the blog, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's all for this episode. Join us next time. And until then, take care.